Hello, everybody. Welcome to Truth Be Told. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, Today, we're going to do the second episode in the series on my recent trip to Israel. If you haven't listened to the first episode, I recommend you going back and doing that. Um, If you don't want to, for whatever reason, if maybe the topic itself doesn't interest you, or maybe only these sites that I'm going to cover today specifically interest you, that's fine. You shouldn't be lost or anything. It just kind of gives you the whole picture overall, which I think is helpful. But I will try and allude back to things from the first episode if necessary. So um, I don't think anybody will be behind by any means, but it just kind of helps you get the whole picture. And that's kind of what we're doing here. Um, I can't replicate what it's like to go to Israel, but I do think that by kind of walking through step by step, you know, I I talked to someone about this the other day, actually. Um, I've heard people talk about their trips to Israel all the time. And, And every time I've heard people talk about it, as I grew up, um, it sounded cool, but I definitely was lacking something, you know, I lost interest over time. And so ideally I'm not doing that same thing. I'm not repeating it, but I'm learning from how people told me stories before. And I'm trying to do that with something else, with something different. Um, and basically it's just my perspective. So who knows, maybe I'm, I'm adding nothing and I'm doing exactly what those people are doing by just kind of telling the story. But hopefully, I guess really my my biggest hope um, is to try and impress upon you guys something of the um, spatial quality of Israel, like, like how things relate to one another and kind of how they look and feel, because that was what I got out of the trip the most was um, it was just a very informative trip spatially. So whether that was looking across a landscape and seeing what biblical characters would have seen at certain times, or whether that was, you know, trying to imagine a ruins built up um, into what it had been around that time, or even if it was just like, oh, okay, I can see what the temple facing east means now and what that looks like and what it faces and, you know, as you're walking up to the Temple Mount, what it feels like or what it looks like. So all of that to me, just spatially getting an awareness of how things are laid out um, across the country and at different sites. That was really, really um, important to me. And I I felt like I benefited a lot from that. So that's what I'm going to try and focus on a little bit more just by going step by step through the trip. So hopefully that is something that you find um, you gain from these episodes. Um, But as we left off yesterday, or not yesterday, wow, I recorded it so long ago, but I just listened back to it yesterday. So as we left off in the last episode, the first uh, thing we were doing the following day would have been uh, just keeping the Day of Atonement. So we went to bed that night pretty early because we were still tired and jet lagged and, you know, admittedly a little bit nervous about how the rest of the trip was going to go and um, how tiring it was going to be. Um, so the next day we kind of had a chance to, to rest up a little bit. We did have uh, services, which uh, was pretty cool, you know, just keeping a holy day in Israel was neat. And for those of you that don't keep the holy days, um, I've mentioned it several times throughout, I mean, any of the episodes that I've posted, I do keep the Old Testament holy days. I believe they're applicable to Christians today, not just the Jewish people and not just for the Old Testament, but I do believe they're things that God expects us to do. So uh, the Day of Atonement is just one of those days. You can find them in Leviticus 23. And the interesting thing about keeping this day in Israel 
is that in a way, even though, you know, Israel is not, um, it's not like every single person in Israel is religious um, or even Jewish, but there is an element of the religion uh, that mixes with the culture. You know, I mean, religion is a big part of culture. So that has still been maintained over the years. And so even if you're a Jew living in Israel that really, you know, doesn't attend any sort of worship service or doesn't go to a synagogue or just really doesn't practice Judaism, there are still portions of Judaism that are just a big part of the culture. And the Holy Days are one of them. So on atonement, um, pretty much the whole city shuts down. And there's a definite like lowering of the use of electricity. Um, and people are religious to varying degrees. You know, there, there are people like especially our guides there, some of them I would talk to about, well, what do you practice and what don't you? And they would say things like, well, you know, sometimes we fast on atonement and sometimes we don't, or sometimes we'll, we'll fast for part of a day or during the Feast of Tabernacles, the Jewish people that are observant build uh, Sukkot or uh, tabernacles and they, they, it's like a little PVC pipe and canvas or drop cloth or maybe like a, a rain tarp looking thing and it's, it's kind of a tent but it's in a, in a box shape. And they build these on their patios, on their rooftops, um, on their balconies, on ground level, and they they eat here. Now, they go from varying degrees. You know, some people uh, live in them the whole week, and some some people just eat in them. Some people don't build them, but they still eat outside. Some people have the kids sleep in them, but they sleep inside. It's just varying degrees. Just like in Christianity, you've got varying degrees of people practicing Judaism. But I would say it's a little bit more interesting in the sense that even people that are explicitly non-religious still do some of these things that um, they identify with their their nationalistic identity. And atonement was one of them. And so the city kind of shuts down and you don't see cars on the streets. And uh, I just I thought that was really, really interesting. The thing that uh, stood out to me, like something I just kept on thinking about was how we were going into the Day of Atonement and things shut down early so that people could go home and prepare for this day. You know, if, if there are people who are not going to turn electricity on or um, maybe even their, their ovens or stoves because of not wanting to start a fire on the Sabbath. Um, and again for, again, for those people that don't know, the Holy Day is a Sabbath day, even though it isn't a Saturday. Um, So the day before the Holy Day was a preparation day. And you find this concept in the Old Testament as well. Friday, uh, you know, manna would fall in the wilderness, but on Friday, um, double manna would fall so that they could collect twice as much. And I'm not sure double manna would fall, but they would collect twice as much so that they would have enough for Saturday. And so, you know, in the culture I live in now, in America, this isn't necessarily as important. You know, a lot of my needs are pretty readily accessible. And for things that I don't account for on Saturday morning, you know, things are still open. People are still doing things. So for example, on Friday, I I prefer to go and get gas on Friday if I need to. um, So I don't have to on Saturday. But you know, I'm not going to miss church because I was dumb and didn't plan well. And so if I'm in an emergency and I, I need gas, I'll stop and get it. Um, and I don't really think about this. I don't think that's a, a huge deal. I don't think that's like evil or wrong. People have their opinions on that. But 
you know, it did make me think as I saw this whole city, so many of whom aren't even religious, really actively uh, doing something on this preparation day, preparing for the next day. Uh, it made me think, you know, maybe I need to take that a little bit more seriously and not treat Friday just like any other day. You know, the Bible doesn't outline preparation day as holy, but it does kind of give it a purpose, you know, in preparation for a holy day. And so what are the things in our lives that maybe we could prepare for a little bit better? Or what are the what are the things that we're just kind of not preparing for us so that on Saturday it becomes a little bit more of a rush? And Again, for those of you that don't keep it, I also keep a, a Saturday Sabbath, and I think that's um, pretty well attested to in Scripture, so we can talk about that at a different time, but just to kind of keep you up to speed. And so that's something I've been thinking about as I've gotten back, just how do I spend my Fridays, and you know, am I accounting for the things that need done on Saturday, and what could I get done ahead of time, knowing that God kind of instituted that, not as a holy day, but as a day to remind the people that, you know, Saturday was coming or the Sabbath was coming. So that was um, definitely an interesting experience. And I kind of had things like that all throughout Israel where it was just like, you know, I I hadn't thought about this in light of, you know, I'm I'm a, um, what people call a premillennial. I believe that Jesus Christ will return before a thousand year reign. There are amillennials, there are postmillennials, and, you know, different views on all of that. I'm a pre-millennial, and um, at some point, I do believe that the whole world will be in obedience to God the Father and God the Son, and at that point in time, you know, I I don't think that, you know, if I fully believe that everyone's going to be keeping the holy days, this was the closest I could get to that vision, you know, even though people weren't always doing it religiously, um, at that time, you know, in the future, I believe people will be keeping God's holy days. And so there's not going to be a gas station open for me at that time. You know, there's not going to be storefronts where I can run in and grab something for snacks after services. I'm going to have to do that stuff the day before. Like it seems like God wanted the people to do. And so all of this was just interesting. Um, kind of a a good reality check for my own life, interesting to see culturally, and then also interesting to think about, you know, a future where maybe people will be, uh, you know, practicing these days a little bit more globally. So that was the Day of Atonement. We did have services and we had meals. Um, I'll say quickly that I think I mentioned it in the last episode, but just in case I didn't, um, the Jewish people today still keep, uh, like, they're, they're very insistent on not breaking the Sabbath. And so what they do is a little bit before the Sabbath, the evening before, because Sabbath is from sundown to sundown, uh, they'll start their Sabbath. And then in order to not break it on the opposite side, they'll extend the Sabbath just a little bit. I mean, they're not extending the Sabbath. The Sabbath is what God says it is. But they are extending, um, if it's just you know, weekly Sabbath, they'll extend their rest. Or if it's atonement, they'll extend their fast. And so we had uh, a proper Jewish atonement this time. So we didn't eat for a little over 24 hours, um, which really wasn't a huge deal because we were just so tired. We we did a lot of just chilling out, resting that day. Um, we did have church, but that wasn't particularly strenuous by any means. And it was cool having church because, you know, we, um, messages were really good. But aside from that, it was kind of our first glimpse of everybody we'd be spending time with. 
um, or at least the the first portion, because this is still the pre-feast trip, which not everybody had signed up for that would be going to the feast itself in Israel. And so we had a few days of touring with this group specifically. And so, you know, you walk into services and you're looking around at, okay, well, who have we got here? Who am I going to hang out with? Who am I going to spend time with? Who's going to be a part of our group? And so that was that was interesting, um, just trying to think ahead to the following day. And we knew a few people um, that had traveled with us from Columbus. And so um, we knew at a, at a baseline we had them that we knew, but who else might we know? And so that was cool to get to know people and see others that we weren't aware were going to be there as well. So then the following day, uh, we woke up early and we, I felt pretty rested, honestly. Um, we had like two days of just kind of chilling out and sleeping. So I felt good. It, it's weird. It took me a lot longer to adjust coming back than it did going there. And some of that might've just been by necessity because, um, you know, we have to tour and my mind knows that and it's excited. So it kind of just shifts more intentionally, I guess. Whereas when I come back, it's like, ugh, back to the same old, same old, you know? So I felt pretty good by this day. Now it's uh, day three and we walk out of the hotel. It feels beautiful. Um, that was like a very hopeful moment for me. I was like, wow, it's eight o'clock, but I'm hoping this temperature just stays the whole day. That wasn't going to happen, but I, it put me off on a good foot. You know, I was like, okay, we're starting the day. It's nice out. I thought maybe it'll stay nice out and we're gonna, just going to have a good day. I'm excited about this. And uh, we walked down the street a little bit to our tour buses. And um, at that point, we didn't have assigned buses or maybe we did, but they didn't really care that much. It was just whichever one you got on. And we happened to hop on um, bus two. Uh, I think it was bus two. I don't know. There was there was only two of them, but our guide was Idan, and he was awesome. I really, really grew to love Idan on this trip. His name is spelled E D A N. The way he phrased it was, it's like email, but Idan, but you know Idan because it's Hebrew. And so he was our guide. He had a background in archaeology, and he had worked on several sites in the area. So that was really cool. The thing that I liked about him so much is that he was challenging. You know, he wasn't just there to find out what we wanted to see. I mean, he was like, he was a tour guide. He did a great job at that. But also in our discussions on the bus from place to place, you know, he'd share his opinion and he would not be afraid of, of sharing not only his cultural opinion, um, but also his professional opinion as an archaeologist. So that was um, kind of challenging, you know, because he's not, it's interesting. None of our tour guides, I would say, were particularly religious. They were to varying degrees observant um, of different aspects of Judaism, but primarily it was culturally. And Idan, I think, was probably the farthest, um, farthest away from religious or spiritual in any way. He was a science-minded person, you know, an objective fact-minded person. And so if you don't have evidence for something from the Bible, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, but there were, there were things that, you know, we don't have evidence for. 
we have um, written evidence for sure, but we don't have archaeological evidence. And that being his field of study, he would just say things very blatantly like, yeah, we don't really know that happened. And you know, I'm used to, I'm kind of used to listening to people like that, um, whether it be on different podcasts I listen to or YouTube presentations. I, I listen to a wide range of people with a wide range of beliefs. Um, my background and the background of all the people on that trip were very much like scripture is inerrant, you know, and I believe that God wrote it. And so if it says it happened, it happened. Um, yes, we should find evidence for it, but it's only to affirm what we already know to be true. And Edan was not like that. He's like, no, I'm just going to say, I don't know if it's true until I find evidence of it. And so I thought that was interesting. I found it challenging and fun. Other people did not so much. They, they felt like they had to prove him wrong and, um, not that it's wrong to try and prove him wrong. You know, if you have evidence for something, go ahead and share it. That was a pretty cool and interesting place to be able to do that. Um, you could talk pretty openly about the Bible all over that place. But anyway, so I, I thought Edan was great. He was very knowledgeable. He knew not only the sites very well, but other sites and how they related to one another. And uh, I was kind of hoping he would be our guide for the whole time just because I, I got to like him quite a bit. But by the end of the trip, I had actually had every single guide at one point or another, at least briefly, um, which I'm really grateful for. Um, I think they all did a nice job and highlighted different things. And so if I had been with just one of them, you know, it might have, it just would have been a very different trip. So I was very grateful that we had Edan. And um, yeah, so we then we started touring. You know, we get on the bus. He's taking us out of Tel Aviv, pointing out little things here and there. Um, he was engaging and entertaining. Started telling us about Tel Aviv and how his, his main focus seemed to be a couple of different things. One, um, the mix of old and new throughout all of Israel and how quickly that happens. Because he showed us pictures or had us look up pictures of Tel Aviv just like a few years ago. Like, I mean... Some of them were like a hundred years, but it was literally like a desert. And the people here just have some sort of resilience and some sort of belief that they can make something out of nothing. And so they do. And he'd point out cities that dotted the horizons. He'd say, you know, 11 years ago, there were no buildings there. And now you look and it's just like a thriving metropolitan area. And so that was a that was a really big focus of his that I really appreciated because it kind of permeates all of the nation, you know, just how resilient the people are and how determined they are, um, how much pride they take in their their country and into making it great, and um, also their ability to, like I said earlier or just a minute ago, turn something, uh, turn nothing into something, you know. They, I mean, they've got really, really arid climates, and they're able to repurpose water better than like any nation in the world in order to literally turn the desert into an oasis. So that was really cool. And I, later I found out that a lot of this is based in their understanding of scripture. You know, there are prophecies about this thing happening, like the dry, the dry ground will bring forth fruit and vegetation. And Israel kind of looks at themselves and they're like, okay, let's get those things done. The Bible says they need to happen, so let's do them. And 
I find that really interesting. It's, it's a very different view than I have of prophecy, you know? Um, sure. In, in some prophecy, you have people that need to do certain things. You got two witnesses in revelation. Well, if they decide not to go, like, you know, I mean, not that I think that's going to happen. God showed with Jonah, he can send anybody anywhere he wants, but you know, a person has to kind of follow along with those plans. You have to actively make them happen. Whereas with other things like, um, Christ returning to the earth and the Mount of Olives splitting in two, like that's a more supernatural event. And I guess to me, predictive prophecy often seems more supernatural than, you know, these, these people in Israel have where they're like, okay, we can read it. It says it needs to happen. Let's just do it. And they do. I mean, from what it was a hundred years ago to what it is now, they've really made a ton of progress in the amount of farmland they've built or the amount of infrastructure. So that was really cool. And that seemed to be a big focus of Edan uh, until we got to the sites themselves. And he was a lot more archeologically minded. Uh, last thing, and then I'll get into the first site. Um, I knew I liked this guy because he started talking about water repurposing and how, you know, a third of their water comes from desalination. A third of it comes from reclamation and a third of it comes from um, like natural sources, I believe it was. So like somewhere that doesn't need desalinated. So you've got Galilee and you've got the Mediterranean really close by. I mean, bordering Israel and uh, a lot of water comes from there. Then you've got uh, waste and he showed us waste plants all throughout. And some of the biggest ones, you know, they they're doing this work of taking wastewater and purifying it. And so a lot of people on our trip took issue with that, but he just kind of kept, I don't know, he kept talking about it and being like, this isn't gross. This is like what we need to do to survive. And so it's honestly amazing that we can do it and we're grateful. So, and he'd make jokes like, thanks for being here and taking showers because it means that we can keep on drinking and watering our crops or hey thank you for flushing the toilet this morning because it means that we'll live another day and as he's talking about all this water uh, repurposing or, or reclamation I just was immediately put in the mindset of the book in the movie Dune and so I raised my hand on the bus and I asked him I was like have you read Dune because everything you're saying sounds so much like that story. And if you haven't read it, basically it's just a desert planet that, um, you know, the, the whole, uh, population of that planet, they live and die on their water intake. And so they build these suits, they call them still suits and they repurpose all of their water, whether it's sweat or urine or spit or condensation from your breath, and then you can drink it. And it just, everything he said sounded so much like that. And there's also elements in later books about the desert turning into a fertile place. And so I asked him if he'd read it and he said, yes, I'm really glad you asked because um, Dune and the man who wrote it, Frank Herbert, he met with, okay, so sorry, I'll start over. So years ago, when Israel was first kind of starting up in like the 1940s, you know, the, the not first starting up, but like the restart up, you know, when it was uh, made a nation again, essentially, um, you know, the, the government in Israel, 
was trying to figure out how to get their water under control. And so they met with officials in New Mexico who also had a similar climate and similar problem. And they brought their best minds to this conference who were kind of working out like, how do we save water? You know, we can't waste any of it because it's all direly important for life. If we don't have water here, we will die. And so they met and the person that covered this whole conference, the young journalist, was Frank Herbert, who wrote Dune. And so a lot of the ideas are basically from uh, Israeli scientists and the Israeli government. So I thought that was really cool because I love that book series and the new movies are great. I even like the old movie pretty well. Um, but the new movie that came out was really good and I'm looking forward to the next one. So if you haven't seen it, check it out and then go to Israel and see the similarities. Okay, so, wow, so much time. I'm sorry, I'm really, really, really trying to not bore people or make this just endless, but there is just so much to talk about. I mean, it's like 19 days and I'm trying to boil it down. So, hope you're still with me. Uh, I haven't started the touring yet, but I'm gonna do that now. So, we get on the bus and we drive for a while to this place called... Tsipori or Sephoris. Uh, Tsipori is the, is the Hebrew and Sephoris is the Greek. And both names mean little bird. And this was interesting, you know, because it's our first place that we're going to be touring uh, intentionally. Obviously, I mentioned in the last episode about Joppa, and that was biblical as well. But Tsipori or Sephoris... Not really sure which one I'm going to use continually here. Um, we'll see which one sticks, I guess. But this place, uh, it's at the northern part of Israel to the west of the Sea of Galilee. It's like the southwest, almost in the middle. So Israel is a really long country. And it's kind of slanted. So the bottom portion of it is off to the west and the top portion is off to the east. So if you took your right hand and held it straight in the air and then tilted it to the right, that's kind of the lean of Israel. And it's kind of the shape, honestly, in in some form. And so imagine if you were to take a long diamond and divide it into four quarters, you know, at each corner. Uh, Tzipori would be at the right top corner of that diamond, um, a little bit closer to the middle line, and it's just above the West Bank, and um, yeah, so that's where it is geographically, and it's interesting because I, at this point, I really don't have any idea where we are um, on a map. I hadn't opened a map yet. I knew that the first part of our trip would be in northern Israel, but I didn't know exactly, you know, what that looked like. And so I have a better idea of it now, but actually I, I drew out a map on the notes I took while I was there and uh, just put a dot where each place was. So that helped a lot. But yeah, so we, we drove from Tel Aviv to Tsipori and that was, it was quite a drive because we're, you know, we're going from basically like mid Israel all the way up to the north. Um, but it was kind of a cool drive. You know, Edan talked a lot and that was nice. But I kept thinking, you know, why are we going to this place? Like the first 
the first site we're going to isn't even a biblical site. Like this name is not found in scripture. And so uh, a little bit, I was jaded. You know, I thought, okay, well, the weather's nice out. Maybe it'll stay like this. That was like my first step forward and being like, let's think positive about everything. And then being like, well, Tapori is not even really a biblical place. It's like, uh, one step back. So I didn't know what to think about this. And I, I kept asking myself, like, why are we going to this place? And, um, Honestly, I was asking that primarily like well before we went to Israel. By the time I got to Israel, I knew why we were going there. But for someone, you know, just listening to this now, it's worth going over because you're probably thinking the same. I've never heard of that name. What does it matter on a trip to Israel? Um, the interesting thing about Sapori or Sephoris is that it is on the next hill over from Nazareth. And so... Uh, it's very close to where Jesus would have grown up. I mean, you can see from Sapori, you can see Nazareth. And uh, so that's really cool. It still looks far away to me. Everything there, because it's so open, um, it's very deceptive. Things that they say, oh, that's so close. You think, wow, that looks forever away. And things they, they say, oh, that's like forever away. You're like, but I can almost touch it. Like it's, it's just right there. So distances are kind of deceiving there. But you can see Nazareth from this place. And the idea is that, uh, well, first of all, tradition says that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was actually from Tsipori. And so um, her mother and father would have been from there. And there's a 12th century crusader church on the property uh, dedicated to Anne, the, or Anna, the mother of Mary. I've heard it, say, it said Anne, and I've heard it said Anna. I don't know, but that's just tradition. There's nothing um, definitively proving that, but it does make sense, you know, with, with the location that they're at um, in the Bible, you know, in the biblical story where you have Nazareth, it it's not a far cry to say that Mary could have been from a close by place, you know, there's not a lot of, uh, you know, family stayed in areas for, for a time. So it's very likely that she was from here. And uh, then you have Jesus growing up in just the next town over in Nazareth. So that's that's a reason it's important. But also, um, our guide kept pointing out that these two places, Tsipori and Nazareth, are almost polar opposites of one another. So you have Nazareth, which is basically a trailer park. I mean, it is a nothing town. It's insignificant. It's got maybe a few hundred people, maybe. And then you have Tsipras, which is like thriving and a lot of businesses here, a lot of uh, trade going on along relatively important roads. It's built up, it's established, it's got maybe a few thousand people. And so the idea is that Joseph, um, being a builder, you know, people think architect and or people think carpenter, sorry, not architect, but the word is is closer to, to builder. And what he would have, it's it's a tecton, and he would have not just maybe done woodworking or whatever, but uh, this profession, you know, most people that study that word or that know Hebrew, modern or ancient, look at this word and they say, you know, this is more like, could have been a stone builder, could have been a builder of buildings, could have been a repairman. This is kind of a handy person, one who knows how to do things with his hands. And so 
Joseph wouldn't have really had a lot of work in Nazareth. You know, people are pretty self-sufficient back then, and it's not that there would have been no work, but it's a very poor place. You know, it's, it's not thriving economically. And so if Joseph wanted to have success in his trade as a builder, he very likely would have gone to Tsipori to practice his trade. And so as Jesus is growing up, you know, apprenticing to his father or helping out where he can, he would have probably spent a good amount of time in this city. Um, Like I said, it seems like it's far away, but really it's um, online. It says it's a 50 minute walk. And so this could have been an everyday thing that Jesus went from Nazareth to here, or maybe they stayed a few days here, a few days there. I'm not sure how it worked, but yeah. So um, odds are good that Joseph and young Jesus would have visited here quite often and maybe even Mary, if it's true that her parents were from there or whatever. Um, this was her hometown. So that's interesting. Um, other people, you know, I, I read some books prior to going to Israel. And one of them said that you can almost imagine Jesus in the poorly populated town of Nazareth uh, in the dark, you know, going outside. And you can look across the valley and everything is dark. You know, they don't have road lights. There's no, you know, it's just the moon and stars and that's it. But anywhere there's a city, you can see, because they put the cities up on hills, you can see the campfires and the cook lights and the lights from people's homes, you know, if they had a fire inside or, you know, little torches or whatever. You can see all of that from really far away because everything is so dark. And so this idea of Jesus, um, you know, looking back over his life and drawing on memories so that when he says uh, when he talks about a city set on a hill whose light can't be covered this might have been a place that he had in his mind you know he didn't just say things arbitrarily from no experience he said things that everybody was experiencing and he had experience with and so uh Tsipori would have been one of those cities where it was kind of shining and bright and um, just would have stood out in the darkness. And so perhaps this is what G- Jesus was thinking when he said that phrase. Um, our guide also, while we were there, mentioned that the school here in Sapori was really, really well known and very well established. And so it's possible, and he believes it's true, and a lot of other archaeologists do as well, um, and scholars in other form, they believe that Jesus would have actually been schooled to some degree, they argue on which degree, um, in this place, Tsipori. And if this is true, it's really interesting to me. I, I tend to think that makes sense. You know, I don't have a problem. Some people think, well, no, he was God. He didn't need schooled. It was just miraculous. And I think, okay, that's fine. Um, maybe that's true. I don't really know. But I don't have a problem with him having some formal education. Um, I think he was academically brilliant, and I think that we can see that throughout Scripture, and I think part of that was due to the fact that he was God in the flesh. So I think either way, I I have no problem uh, either way it works out. But if he was schooled, uh, the likely candidate for his schooling would have been Sapori. And the way that school worked in this time is that Typically, everybody would be, you know, all all male children at least would be schooled to a certain age, um, at least those who could afford some sort of payment, you know, and they'd be schooled to a certain age so they could learn uh, Torah and their letters and 
then after a while they'd, they'd stop and they'd go apprentice. And perhaps this is what Jesus did. We don't really know. But our guide made the case that when you read of Jesus interacting with the Pharisees in the temple, um, when he's uh, just like a preteen going into his teen years, that this is evidence that the Pharisees saw something in him. And very likely, um, you know, they, he says, they, in Israel, you don't waste anything. You don't waste water. You don't waste resources. You don't waste talent. And this has been true for centuries. And so people seeing the academic prowess of Jesus would not have let that go to waste. And so he thinks it's very likely that the Pharisees would have actually sponsored Jesus's education and funded it here in Sapporo. And uh, if that's true, I think it's very interesting because it adds a whole other layer to the conflict we see between Jesus and the Pharisees uh, throughout his ministry. Because often we want to just look at the Pharisees and say, well, these are the bad guys, you know, and Jesus was the good guy. That's just kind of how it plays out. But if you think about it this way, not only are the Pharisees upset that Jesus is teaching things that they don't like to hear or, you know, he's calling them out, but also these guys are the ones that funded his education. They brought him up and doesn't he owe them some sort of respect or reverence? And obviously I think they would have thought that anyways, just because they were uh, well-respected and well-thought-of in the Jewish community. Um, so I think they demanded a certain level of respect, but it adds another layer of maybe just just tension uh, if you think that perhaps they saw the ability of Jesus and then funded his education. And um, I think it also, it also it adds tension, but it also adds a level of familiarity that Jesus would have had with these people. And I think... Um, you know, they say familiarity breeds contempt. And so Jesus was a, a front, had a front row seat for the corruption of the Pharisees. Um, but also I think that maybe we, we overplay his, it's almost like he hated them. And I just, I don't think he did. He was mad at what they were doing. He was mad at their culture, mad at their practices. But um, I do think that there's a level of familiarity here. And so just an interesting thing. I cannot prove it to you. And our guide even said, he said, I cannot prove this to you. He said, but the evidence, like all the evidence I've seen leans in favor of the idea that Jesus was, or Jesus had a funded education here in Sapporo. So if so, that's also very interesting. A few more things, then I'll get into the tour itself. Wow. I'm so sorry. I might just be able to go through one site at a time. See, some of these sites are going to be quicker than others. And, um, it's really just hard to know until I get into it. Um, but a few other things. So also in Sapporo, um, the Mishnah was finished here. Really, really important Jewish writing. Uh, and if you're like me, I get a lot of these names confused. You know, what's in the Mishnah and what's in the Talmud? What's a Midrash and where do I find that? And so I, I just looked it up and made sure I was right. The Mishnah is the complete writings of the Jewish oral law. And it was compiled and completed here at Tsapori. And so, really big deal. Um, not only does that speak to the importance of the place, because it's an important book, um, but also the importance of the place, I think, speaks to the importance of the Mishnah. So, uh, and also the academic, um, 
you know, the standing in the, the good standing of the academic nature of this place, I think, is testified to by the uh, completing of the Mishnah here. Uh, so that's cool. Uh, for a while, post 70 AD, when Jerusalem was destroyed, the Sanhedrin, which is like the court system of the Jewish people, was seated here at Sephori, uh, Sephoris or Tsapori. So that's really cool. Um, and what's interesting here, you know, all over Israel you had Romans stationed, but the reason we went here is because it was su- it's such a well-preserved site. You go to Nazareth, and because it wasn't much of a town, the ruins you have there are almost, they're, they're kind of insignificant, even though biblically they're very significant. Um, from an archaeological standpoint, there's not a lot to uncover there, whereas Tsipori has a lot of things to uncover. It has, it has a lot of things really well preserved. And so from an archaeological standpoint, it's kind of a treasure trove. And it's a really good example of a first century city. And uh, we learn a lot from that place. And so that was cool. But another reason it was so well preserved is because during the Jewish wars, um, which is a really, really famous time that Josephus writes a lot about, during the Jewish wars, this town was so well integrated with their Roman occupiers that they decided not to fight back. Even though um, this was the administrative center of Galilee, uh, which was a huge part of the Jewish wars, was a huge resistance in Galilee against Rome. So even though this is like the capital almost, the administrative center of Galilee, they chose specifically not to fight against Rome. And so Rome preserved them and... That's why we have such great ruins today. It's funny, great ruins, well-preserved ruins. It's almost like an oxymoron, but you get what I mean. Um, And then the last thing I'll say is that uh, even Josephus writes about this place. He calls it the jewel of Galilee. And so speaks to its beauty, its importance, its uh, prominence at the time. And so for all these reasons, uh, this is why we were touring here. And, you know, once you have all this in mind, you're like, okay, sweet, tell me about it. Like, that's how I felt. You know, I'm like, great, now I want to see it. Um, And that's the way it is for a lot of places, you know. You get excited when when you don't know about what something is or what the significance is. Who cares? But once you learn about it, then it's exciting. Then you want to see more. Then you want to learn more. And that's exactly how it was here. All right, so we all get off the bus and we start the tour. Uh, first thing we do is go to the bathroom because we went to the bathroom about 100 million times because anytime you're with a large group of people, specifically older people, you're going to have to use the bathroom a lot. So that's what we did and the rest of us just kind of waited. At every site, they had these uh, layouts, like these map layouts that were pretty big, you know, probably... 10, 12 feet across and just a giant square and it had the elevation of the whole place and little buildings and markers where all the important things were, just a little scale model. So we stood around that and our guide kind of walked us through the tour of what we'd be doing and then we set off and almost immediately we're on this Roman street and it's cool, you know, you know you're at a site and everything here is thousands of years old And yet the streets are so well made that we can still use them as streets. It's not like they had to build a street uh, for us to go and see the ruins of the street. We're just on the first century street that perhaps Christ would have walked down. And I just, I think that that is pretty awesome. 
and it is hot and it's, it, you know, the street is not, it's not like smooth. I wouldn't ride my bike down it, you know, without being uncomfortable, but it's walkable. It's not like I'm climbing over broken stones. It's, it's well-made. And I just, I find that pretty interesting. Um, but it was hot. Our guide kept saying, um, you know, he's like, every time you leave the bus, you need three things, sunscreen, water, and a hat. And, um, and our like whisper devices, which if you haven't been on a tour before, uh, it's basically like a little transceiver, like a, like a radio receiver thing. So you hang it around your neck and then connect to the channel that your tour guide's on. And then he talks into it so that no matter, you know, if you're a little bit behind, you can still hear him and they called him whispers. So yeah, he wanted us to have those too. I never had sunscreen. I felt like I did okay in that region, but yeah, water, man, water was so important. So we're walking down this road and after, I don't know, maybe two minutes of walking, you know, he stops us, pulls us over to the side and he says, I want you to look down at this. And we, we gather around one brick in the road. He says, now you're standing in a place that would have been, um, basically like the city mall. I mean, there's shops all over this place. That's a store and that's a store over there. They're selling grain over here. They're selling cloth. And he kind of builds up the site in our view and he says, and then, you know, there's Romans occupying this space and there's guards, but this is a peaceful city. These Roman guards have very little to do because there's not a lot of resistance to them being there. And so you have one guard standing outside the shop, over, overseeing everybody, making sure nothing bad happens, and he gets bored. And, you know, maybe he's standing around with a few of his friends. And so they lean down and, uh, you know, take a knee and they're in the street and they start carving in the stone. And we look down and there's this carving in the stone and it's like a grid. It's a square with concentric squares inside of it, like two or three, and then an X through those squares. So it kind of looks like um, a grid or a spider's web or something. And he says, this is a game of dice that the Romans would have played. And I just thought that was awesome. You know, it's something small. And we, as we kept on walking, we saw them everywhere. So they must've been really, really bored. Um, to not just use the same one, or there must've just been a lot of, a lot of Roman soldiers, but I thought it's cool. You know, I get bored at work sometimes. So it was interesting just to see humanity, you know, everything around you is in ruins and it's kind of torn down. It's less than its former glory, but here this, this grid dice game is still preserved and looks exactly how it did in the first century or maybe the third century or whatever. So that was that was pretty cool just to kind of connect on a human level with a Roman guard that would have stood right there where we were standing. So I liked that a lot. Um, we kept on walking, turned to the left into like a lower portion of where the shops were. And here they had it covered because there was a lot of uh, art things they wanted preserved from the elements in case it rained or, you know, preserved from maybe wind or too much dirt blowing through. I'm not sure. But we went down into this covered area and there's mosaics everywhere. I mean, every corner you turn, there's a new mosaic and they're absolutely beautiful. Um, just, just truly stunning. And what's interesting is this was kind of our first view of the syncretism that was happening in this area. So you've got Jews and Romans in one place and you kind of have this middle group of people. It's more of a gradient than it is like, here's the Jews and here's the Romans. There's all kinds of people that 
are religious or non-religious or count themselves as Roman almost because they've grown up under the system or, you know, count themselves as Jewish. But there's a lot of mid-ground here. It's not just this person against this person. And this is seen because on some mosaics, you've got images of gods and goddesses and people and war figures and scenes of awesome things happening. You've got animals and plants of all kinds. And then sometimes you have mosaics that are just patterns, no images of anything. And this would have been for a more orthodox Jewish person, you know, a person that, not orthodox like we think of it, but, you know, a more conservative Jewish person that believes they shouldn't have images of anything because it's idolatry. But then you have these middle mosaics where they have images of some things, but still not the Greek gods and goddesses or Roman god and goddesses. So that was really interesting because it shows there's a lot of different uh, levels of adherence to religious practices, even at this time. And so, you know, it was also interesting because, you know, I, I am familiar with the idea of shopping. I'm familiar with the idea of, you know, if you like a contractor, if you build a house and you go and you shop for different flooring or different wallpaper, different paint, whatever, different tile, I understand this. Um, mosaic to me just seems different. It seems, it doesn't seem like something you'd go and shop for. It just seems like something that would be commissioned maybe, or maybe you know the artist or I I don't know. I'm not sure how I thought it worked, but this little shop was something that people would go into and they would look and see, oh, you can do that level of work. Oh, you can make that thing look that realistic or this thing look that beautiful. This would be perfect in my dining room. And they went and shopped for mosaics. So they had all these examples on the ground. And uh, that that was just, I'm not sure why that was so interesting. Um, but it was. I saw a picture today of um, the world's largest intact ancient mosaic was found in Turkey um, just a few years ago. And if you look at the picture of it, you can look this up online. It's from the 6th century. It's a stone mosaic. Um, It's like 1,200 square meters. And it's this beautiful pattern. But the land has shifted underneath it. And so now the picture of it looks like, almost makes it look like a carpet. And I think this is so interesting because while a lot of stonework and art and architecture is just a shadow of its former self, mosaic has lasted so well by sheer virtue of it being made up of hundreds and hundreds of pieces, you know? So as the land shifts underneath it, um, it can kind of shift with it just a little bit, has a little bit of give to it. Or as a piece of it is damaged, it doesn't crack and disintegrate the whole thing. It just cracks that one part and damages that one part. So um, I think mosaic is beautiful, but it's interesting, you know? It looks so intricate and so finely designed that it's amazing that it's lasted so long, but it's because of the art form itself that it has lasted. So that part was was really cool to me. All right, so then after this uh, mosaic shop and all the storefronts that we saw, we started climbing up this hill. Everything in Israel is built on a hill, um, especially all the ancient sites. And there, there's good reason for that, but um, the heat definitely started to come out at this part of the day. Just got hotter and hotter as the time went on. But we're climbing up this hill and there's steps in some places and just kind of gravel or dirt in other places. And, um, you know, it's almost like every hill we started going up, 
I kept remembering back to that first day of walking where my shoes were killing me. I was hot. I was hungry. I was tired. And I just thought like, oh man, is this going to be the part where I embarrass myself by being exhausted or just like die of heat stroke or something? The whole trip was fine. It was not a problem at all. But I just kept being afraid of that. You know, it's like uh, when you imagine something to be worse than it is, it ends up sometimes being worse than it is just because your imagination made it that way. And this was a little bit like that. You know, it was really wasn't that big of a climb. Um, decent amount of stairs up to the top of this place. Um, and our guide kept pointing out that, you know, the poorer levels were on the base of this hill and the richer levels were at the top. And so we kept going. Um, walking up this path and there's like cactuses everywhere and I mean just a lot of plants a lot more plants than I thought there would be Um, but we're climbing up this hill and I was reminded of this meme where it's um, or it's not a meme it's a reel where Frodo it's a a video of Frodo and the caption reads me five minutes into an incline on a hike I really wanted to do and then it's Frodo and he says I am ready to go home Sam and I just every time I see it I crack up um, cause I think, I think Frodo says that in, man, this is going to be so nerdy, but I think Frodo says that in Rivendell at the end of the first movie. And he's like, yeah, I'm ready to go home. Not knowing he's got two more movies to complete and like a long way to go. But that is how I felt. You know, I'm so excited to be there. And then as soon as he's like, all right, we're going to climb up here. I'm like, I am ready to go. home. <laughs> but I, it really looking back, like, I think so much more of it was in my imagination. Um, than it was in reality, because it wasn't that bad, so we start climbing up this trail, and uh, along the road, we see this hole in the ground, off to the right, and it's got like an arch of rock over top of it, like natural arch that had been kind of dug away underneath it, and to me, it just looked like a hole, you know, I didn't think anything of it, and our guide stops us, and he says, this would have been a very rich person's grave, I'm like, what? Like, that is nuts, but basically what they did I knew part of this, but not all of it. Basically, what they did was um, when a person died, they'd put them in a grave and they'd let them decompose. And after a year or, you know, however long it took, they would go and get the bones. And then those bones would just be thrown in a pit, like just a hole in the ground. And uh, that's why in the Bible, when it says they were gathered, their bones were gathered to their fathers or whatever, it's like, well, that's what that means. Like they gathered the bones. Then they dumped them in a pit where all the rest of the family's bones were. And the reason this was probably a wealthy person's grave or a wealthy family's grave is because it was dug into the rock, wasn't just in the ground, and it was higher up the hill. So that was kind of cool. Didn't look like much. Literally just looked like a hole uh, with a little rock arch over top of it. But it was cool to see, you know, everywhere you turn, you might be missing something in Israel, unless the guide points it out, so I was glad he did, Uh, then we kept on climbing this hill all the way to the very top, and at the top, there's this giant box of a building, I mean, just an absolute perfect cube, and this was a crusader fortress, now to me, um, I'm, I'm looking for the biblical things, you know, I, crusaders are so interesting to me at almost any other time than being in Israel, and I wish that weren't true, because there's so much crusader history there. But admittedly, I kind of glossed over some of those things when we talked about them. You know, I'm, I'm looking for connections to Jesus and the characters of the Bible. Then as soon as they say, oh, this is a crusader or something, I'm like, oh boy. I think 
later, you know, I, I I'm appreciative of it now, more appreciative of it now. Like I'm grateful that we saw those things because I really do read about the Crusaders a lot. I watch a lot of movies about them and I, I think they're cool. It just wasn't really what I was expecting. But um, this is a fortress that when the Crusaders rode out towards their last battle against the Muslim sultan named Saladin in 1187, they rode out from here and this was their final defeat. So they were no longer a presence in Israel after that point. But I don't know. I just think that that is pretty interesting. The end of the Crusaders, they left from here. This was like last their last ride, you know. And uh, what's interesting about this fortress, uh, one thing interesting anyways, is that it's got, it's in some ways it's well built, like it's a, like it's a really perfect cube, which for some reason just looks odd at the top of this barren hill, especially after walking up the mountain or side of this hill or whatever, with all this vegetation and ruins and homes and things like that. And then you get to the top and it's like empty, except for this box of a building. But other parts of it aren't really built so well and you can tell because nothing is even like none of the none of the stones used to carve it are for beauty it seems like you know none of the none of the building materials are really that well put together it's not that it's not beautiful it is in a way just for the sheer fact that it stood for this long it's it's beautiful but it's clear that it was made more for utilitarian purposes than it was uh beauty and so on the side of this building, there's some of the stones that are like long and rectangular boxes. And our guide pointed out, he's like, he walked right up to it, smacked the side. He said, this is a Roman coffin. I'm like, wow, that's crazy. And so, you know, Romans were there in Sapori and they were, they lived in, and died in that place. And so they're buried. And then the, the crusaders come in and they're not, in some ways, they were amazing builders, you know, when they had to, the time to do it and were intentionally trying to build something beautiful. They built some amazingly beautiful things. Some people say that they actually learned some of their building from ancient architects like um, the same people that built the temple that passed on that knowledge. There's like a whole mythological lore behind that where like those who built Solomon's temple... Um, who had the Holy Spirit to build this amazing, beautiful work of art, um, passed that knowledge down, and the Masons somehow got a hold of it, and the Knights Templar somehow got a hold of it. So I'm not sure how true all of that is, but there there is evidence that they did build some beautiful things. This is not really one of them. It's beautiful by my standards. I couldn't build it, but it's not nearly like some of the things you would see in other places of the world. And they had to use what they had, you know, they're kind of in wartime. And so they're building things more utilitarian and they're building things with unconventional materials like Roman coffins. So that part was was pretty interesting. Uh, so after we're up there for a little bit, we make our way back down the hill on the other side of it. Beautiful views from up there, by the way. You can see Nazareth really well. Um, you can just see across for miles and miles. And you get the sense that if the guide were to take the time, he could just point out like all these different historical places because there's seriously not a place you step that something didn't happen in Israel. It's that small of a place and that historically important of a place. So we walk down from the Crusader Fortress and we enter into this mansion that's still pretty close to the top of the hill. It's um, a third century mansion and 
not a lot to report here, but there was one thing that was cool. There's a mosaic floor in there, and it has this picture of a woman, and she's called the Mona Lisa of Galilee because um, apparently everywhere you stand in the room, it looks like she's looking at you. And it, honestly, I did think that was true. And you can look her up if you just type in Mona Lisa of Galilee. It's beautiful. I really thought... I thought she was actually more beautiful than the regular Mona Lisa in a lot of ways, but her eyes just do seem to follow you. And there's a little bit of mystery as to who this person is um, and what she would have been put in the floor for. So that's interesting. And the mosaic really was beautiful. There's also a theater at this part of the town of Tsipori. And what's interesting is, you know, the theater... Um, a lot of biblical references to theater, like hypocrite, you know, and Jesus says that a lot to the Pharisees. And so they brought up the point, you know, this is maybe a theater that Jesus would have visited as a kid. And uh, this is where he might have learned the concept of what a hypocrite was in order to call the Pharisees that later in life. So it's interesting that he's potentially schooled in this city by Pharisees on the Pharisees' dime, going to the theater as a, a way of, you know, enjoying time with friends or whatever. And learns terms like hypocrite only to go and turn that back on them. So it's like he turned his opportunity into, uh, you know, how do I explain this? It's like he grew in knowledge and then turned that knowledge on them. And I just think that that's interesting. Um, not because we need to credit the Pharisees with the knowledge of Jesus. Like he was going to learn what he needed to learn. I'm sure God was going to make sure of that. But it is interesting, kind of like a Frankenstein's monster turning on Frankenstein, which I'm just now realizing is slightly a blasphemous connection, but I'm hoping you don't take it that way. Um, but anyways, there was a theater there. It was interesting. It was beautiful to see. And what's cool is, you know, even though this was the wealthier portion of the city, there weren't like gates anywhere. You know, it's not like poor people have to stay out. This was a city. And so, People kind of could come and go at different places as they pleased. Um, so that was cool. We kept on going down the hill. We're almost done, I promise. One more thing, and then um, I'm going to end it for the day. We'll get to Nazareth in the next episode. I'm so sorry this took so long, but hopefully it was interesting. Um, we get down to the bottom of the hill, and this is where the synagogue was. And this would have been the synagogue um, like just prior to 70 AD, but also... Uh, after 70 AD as well. Probably not something, I mean, maybe it was built on a similar site that Jesus would have been at, but it's hard to tell. It, it's hard to be that exact with some of the dates. And so not really likely that Jesus would have been here in this synagogue, but it is possible. Um, so we get down to the synagogue and there's another huge example of syncretism here in the floor of this synagogue. Beautiful, beautiful building. Um, or not even the building itself, because the building was kind of normal. But when you go into it, the mosaic floor was just stunning. And on this floor, you simultaneously have temple instruments, like the menorah is depicted, or biblical stories are depicted, like uh, Abraham and Isaac. But then there's also, right in the middle, this giant wheel of mosaic that are all the zodiac signs. And so you've got this interesting mix of Judaism and Roman mysticism, maybe. And uh, I just, I think that's interesting. Now, different people have different views on how much the Zodiac or certain astrological 
practices did find their way into Judaism and how early. But, you know, I, I don't think it's biblical. And so one way or another, they were syncretizing uh, those practices or those ideas into their faith. Um, but it is interesting, you know, you're looking at the floor and it's like they're using these almost as uh, teaching tools. And it's art that people can look at. And it was interesting, too, because they're images. You know, at the store earlier, the mosaic floor shop, the Jewish uh, floors would have been the patterned ones, not the ones with images. And yet here in the synagogue, there's images everywhere. And so there's a level of allowance for that. And I'm not sure I'm not sure just how okay that was, you know, for that kind of worship. Because even in the temple, you've got images of... Uh, you know, angels or pomegranates on the pillars or whatever. So perhaps it's okay in a synagogue. I'm not sure because it's not just a church, but it's a place of learning. So I don't know. Um, They also had Greek and Hebrew written all over the floor. And so they had different prayers and um, different inscriptions like this was donated by this person or, um, you know, there's a prayer that I I looked at and I I noticed it's in Greek lettering, but at the very bottom, there's one word in Hebrew and it was amen, or emun, or emuna, amen, however you want to say it, um, whether you want to say it in, in Hebrew or Greek, but yeah, amen, amen, this is a, a Greek term, verily, I agree, um, but it was interesting that the whole prayer is in Greek, and then the the amen is in Hebrew, I thought that was fascinating, and so it's a beautiful place, this whole town of Tsipori is beautiful, and it, it gave me a real picture of what Christ would have grown up around, you know, what Jesus would have seen as a kid, even if it's not true that he ever would have been there. This is a prime example of a first century town in Galilee and a wealthy one at that. So well-preserved. And uh, I think it was valuable just for that alone, just to kind of get a picture of what the people in the New Testament would have seen when they entered into a city. Um, This was a good example of that. And so I hope... Uh, this was interesting for you. This was exactly like, I wrote down a few notes. I didn't on the first episode, but on this one, I just wrote down like bullet points of what I wanted to cover. It took up one page and I've been talking to you for an hour. So I do apologize. Some of these, like I said, will be much shorter. Um, just depends on the place, the significance, what I got out of it. But hopefully this was interesting to you and we will keep going with this, uh, in just a little while. So stay tuned for more episodes. After uh, Tsipori, we went to Nazareth. And so that'll be what we start off with uh, in the next episode. So you don't want to miss that. A lot of really important things for the upbringing of Christ in that episode. So thank you guys for listening. Until next time, keep on reading your Bibles. Keep on thinking critically about them. and Keep on applying the lessons that you learn there in your lives. Thank you.